Welcome to the Horses and Life podcast. The last time I came to you with a intro, I was on the side of the road in Nevada, heading to the Spanish Ranch. I didn't tell you which ranch I was heading to because at that time I wasn't sure if they would be hiring or if I would end up with a job there. So anyway, um, the first ranch that I wanted to go work at uh, was a Spanish ranch and that was one of them on my list. And then my goal was if they weren't hiring, then I would have went on to a different ranch, but they were willing to hire me. So I hung around there and worked for a little while. It was an amazing experience to say the least. Got to meet some great guys. It was uh, just kind of like in the old Western movies. I pulled in the driveway and the cow boss, Sam Marvel, he just happened to be heading out the driveway with a load of bulls. I said, how's it going? He said, good. I said, well, I'm looking for a job. And he must have noticed my license plate on my truck. And he said, are you the guy from Missouri that called me a few months ago? I said, yes, sir. He said, well, sorry, I never called you back. I said, oh, it's all right. He said, so you just drove out of here, huh? I said, yes, sir. I said, well, I guess I'll hire you for a while. I said, all right. So he said, I got to go other side of the mountain and unload these bulls. So I'll see you in the morning. Work starts at 530. I said, okay. Go down there. They'll find an office. And there's a lady there named Olene. She'll get you checked in. I said, all right. So went down there, found the office. Sure enough, walked into the office, and there was Olene, and she said, how's it going? Can I help you? I said, well, I just talked to Sam in the driveway. He's going to hire me for a little bit. She said, okay, are you the guy from Missouri that called a few months ago? I said, yes, ma'am, I am. She said, well, he never called you back, did he? I said, no, that's all right, though. I said, well, they get kind of busy around here and don't have a lot of phone service. I said, it's no problem at all. She said, well, he fill out this paperwork. So I filled out the paperwork. And uh, she told me where the bunkhouse was. She said, find a bunk that doesn't have anything on it. It'll be yours. The guys are out working, but they'll be back later. I said, okay. Told me where to park my trailer. Anyway, then the guys showed up, and I found a bunk that was empty, so put my stuff in there. And then I went down to the barn, and they had a stall that was empty there. They just kind of used tie stalls. He said, well, if you've got some tack, you can put your tack in that stall in the corner. It'll be yours. I said, okay. And then I was there for uh, about a month working. It was a pretty cool deal. Pretty neat to be around some real cowboys, working cowboys uh, out there that kind of go by the word buckaroo. That's kind of the what they call the cowboys in the Salt Basin there in Nevada. The buckaroo word probably came from the vaquero word. It was kind of a cowboy way of saying vaquero, and then it turned into buckaroo anyway doesn't really matter what they call them but the word cowboy is uh given to a lot of people over the years of course i've been called it before and a lot of other people have too but it's actually a real job title in a lot of parts of the country or a lot of parts of the world so out there's uh one of those places where uh, men and women both but uh, there'll be real cowboys cowgirls and that's kind of what they do so Some of the best uh, ropers in the world working out there on those ranches. I got to work with some really good hands. uh, Sam Marvel and Woody Harney and Junior and Josh and Ken and Eddie. and Just some pretty good hands there that have been doing that kind of work. A lot of them their whole lives. A lot of them 
kind of been doing it for a while and they kind of live that life every day. And then a couple of the guys are a little newer at it. They've done a little rodeo in the past or some other different things and worked on other ranches. I was just felt lucky that they kind of let me be a part of the team for a little while and sure had a good time. I've told uh, quite a few of you some of the stories already, and I'll get a chance to tell more of you some of those stories. I don't know if any of those guys that are out there at the ranch even know that I have a podcast or uh, get a chance to listen, but uh, sure glad that I got to go out there and spend a little time, learn some things, and got to kind of put some pieces together on the stuff that I'm working on in my horsemanship journey. Definitely got to improve my roping skills a little, which didn't take much because they weren't uh, they weren't much to start with, and they're still not. But I got to got to watch and learn a lot of what those guys were doing, and I got to be a part of a lot of the brandings and ropings. And we roped a lot, and they're got, those guys are still doing it every day. That's what they do. They'll rope four or five thousand head in a year. Uh, they'll brand that many, and I got to be a part of just a small fraction of that while I was there. So anyway, I'll make it back out there sometime. And as some of you know, I try to make it to some other ranches here and there. But that was the first time that I'd really spent time just taking a job full-time as an employee on the ranch and just doing that uh, as a cowboy. So it was quite an experience and I'm glad I did it. So especially any of you young people out there that are kind of interested in this type of stuff, uh, you've got to go do that at some point or another. So do it while you're young. I'm still young. That's why I wanted to go do it now before I get to the point where I didn't want to. So after about a month there, I drove back to Kansas City. I stopped in around Cheyenne on my way back at my friend Scott's place, the Bartlett Ranch, and we branded some calves there one day. And then I drove on to Kansas City. I had a clinic in Kansas City for a couple days. Then I flew to Europe. On my way to Europe, they lost my bags. Two items. One was a big suitcase full of stuff, and the other one was just two flags taped together. Anyway, they lost both of them, and we ended up finding, 10 days later, we found the flags in Zurich, Switzerland at the airport. Scott and I looked through all the bags in the lost baggage at the airport, which there's so many, it's unbelievable. But the suitcase had never have found, so they still don't know where that is. It's been three weeks now, so still don't have that. Anyway, so I got to try out some European jeans and boots and got a new shirt and, uh, so we, we had a lot of fun with that. The people over there didn't think it was very that funny because that's what they wear anyway. But some of my friends from back here that saw some pictures, they sure got a kick out of those jeans and stuff. But I was just happy that I had good clinic hosts and good people that went and took care of me and got some jeans and got some boots and made sure I had what I needed to get the job done and get the clinics done over there. We had, uh, I don't know how many days we worked past midnight working horses. Um, we had a lot of horses to work and, uh, it was just sure great meeting new people over there. And it seems like every year I go, we have a few more people to work with and, uh, more places to go. So it's pretty exciting seeing new people get a hold of this information and, uh, see the value in it. After Europe, I flew straight back to Pennsylvania. We had a two day clinic there where we just focused on outdoor riding and we kind of got a lot of horsemanship done while we were doing it. They got to see me work a little bit on some young horses, but mostly we just went out every day and rode, moved some cattle around, did a little bit of everything. And then I spent a few days there working the ranch horses. 
at the Dublin Gap Ranch in Pennsylvania. And then I flew to Wisconsin. I was a day late because we had some plane troubles. It was definitely the first time in my life that I've been on an airplane. And I was told, prepare to make an emergency landing. That's kind of a scary feeling. And then we spent the next hour, they were working on the landing gear. It wasn't working. And we turned around, headed back to the airport we came from, up in the air. And the intercoms weren't working. The air conditioning wasn't working anyway. And then they told us that we're going to be making an emergency landing. So everything got pretty serious for a little while and people were pretty hysterical. And yeah, that's one of those feelings that uh, you don't want to have every day. But obviously we did not crash and uh, the landing gear finally worked the third time. We tried it. We went down and dipped down and they tried the landing gear and then we'd go back up. Then they dipped a half hour, big loop, and then they dipped down again. Then they'd go up in a big loop, and then they dip down again. And the third time, we were out of fuel, so it's a good thing that it worked the third time because either way, I think we were going to be landing slash crashing whether or not the landing gear was coming down or not. So anyway, that made for an exciting day. So I missed the first day of the clinic dealing with all that. I have to stay in Pennsylvania another night, and then finally uh, made it to Wisconsin a day late. And we started uh, the clinic on day two. So we had a two-day clinic instead of a three-day. But it went really well. We worked some cattle, got to go outside, ride in the pasture a little bit. People got better. Horses got better. Weather was perfect. So I was happy to be up there. And then I flew from Wisconsin to Kansas City tonight. And I landed about 11 p.m. in Kansas City. And now it is a little after midnight, and I am trying to catch up on the podcast stuff. Because I had some recording equipment in my suitcase, which is still possibly in Europe or maybe Australia by now. Who knows? So I wasn't able to get much done the last three weeks. I would say I've been living out of a suitcase, but I don't have my suitcase. So I've just kind of been living out of whatever I can find. But my truck's been here in Kansas City. And anyway, now I'm back here, and uh, I think you guys will be hearing this podcast hopefully within a day or two of me getting back here. So everything should be pretty much uh, on the on the go. So anyway, I kind of gave you a little 10-minute spiel there on what I've been doing the last, I don't know, I guess almost two months or so, month and a half since I've recorded an intro. The last podcast that we put out was a pre-recorded intro already, so I haven't really recorded one since uh, since the time I was in Nevada when I when I recorded the last one. So anyway, I just kind of gave you a quick 10, 12 minute spiel there about it, but I've got a lot more stories about all those different things that happened. And when we get a chance to catch up, I'll tell you a little bit more about them. But for today, I'm going to let you guys listen to a conversation with a guy that I just met this year, a good friend of mine, uh, Nick Bonacore. And Nick is, uh, he can tell you, obviously, the, you're about to hear the podcast, tell you a little bit more about what he's doing. But basically, I kind of heard uh, online a little rant that he went on talking about youth sports and some of the things that he thinks about as a parent and a coach. And he's trying to make some changes in that regard and changes for the better that I think for sure. So anyway, this was a trip. I actually drove, I think, a 15-foot U-Haul box truck with a 15-foot stock trailer behind it, hauling three horses from Missouri to South Carolina. 
dropped off the horses and trailer and then drove into Charlotte and met Nick there. And he picked me up at the U-Haul place. We stopped there in Charlotte, recorded this podcast, and then he dropped me off the airport and I flew back to Kansas City that day. That was a couple months ago. And uh, anyway, we've been kind of waiting to get this out. So it was just another one of those uh, trips that I uh, end up finding myself on on a regular basis, something going on like that. So anyway, got a lot of cool stories from out there at the Spanish Ranch. And if you guys get a chance, you can Google the Spanish Ranch or you can look it up on YouTube. And and, uh, there's songs about it. There's videos about it, articles about it. It's uh, kind of a legendary place. And uh, I'll talk more about it later on. Maybe one of these days I'll get a chance to have Sam or Woody, one of those guys that's kind of been around for a while, talk a little bit about it and get them on the podcast. But I didn't really want to taint what I was doing out there with talking about my business and my podcast. And that's not why I went out there. I went out there just kind of for myself to go learn. I didn't really try to get into all the things that I do for a living because I wasn't really there to talk about me or promote myself. I was just there to, to try to live that cowboy life a little bit and to kind of learn from some of those guys, some of the things that they do. So, but I know a lot of you have already asked me, did you get those guys on the podcast? Did you get, take your stuff with you? And, And I didn't, but we got a lot of time left. So one of these days I'll maybe get back out there or get a chance to talk to those guys again. So in the meantime, we're going to switch gears from the horse thing a little bit, let you guys listen to a conversation from me and my friend Nick, and I hope you enjoy it. Here it goes. Okay. Well, welcome to the podcast. Here I am with my new friend, Nick Bonacore. Nick, thanks for being on the Horses in Life podcast. How are you today? I'm doing great, Cal. It's a pleasure to meet you. A pleasure to be here. I'm excited. Let's yeah, get this excited. show started, baby. Nick told me he was real excited about being on the podcast. I said, don't get too excited. It's not that big a deal, but I'm uh, happy to have you on here. So I've had quite a day, quite a couple of days. I took a trip driving, hauling some horses down here for a customer of mine, a friend of mine down here in South Carolina, dropped the horses off, drove straight to Charlotte. Nick drove about four hours today to be here, yep. and we just thought we'd try to catch up here and talk about some of the things that Nick's passionate about, so... Nick, tell us about you and what you're up to. All right. Well, uh, again, thank you for letting me uh, come on. It's a pleasure. And Mother's Day, I want to first off, I want to give my wife, Amy, a shout out. She's home nursing a migraine and talk about supporting uh, the cause. She has her crazy husband out there who's trying to follow a passion and letting me kind of get away with on Mother's Day of all days, leave the six kids at home and she's holding down the fort. So I'm grateful to her. I love you, Amy. Thank you so much. So what I've been working on and kind of is my website and Facebook page and kind of the concept. It's called the Reform Sports Parent. And basically what it is about is it's basically something that I've been feeling as a parent and as a former athlete for the last few years. I have kids that play multiple sports for a long time. And I just noticed that something's a little bit off in youth sports. There's definitely something I believe that's off in the culture. And what I'm trying to do is raise awareness to the fact that it's not about when kids are 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 years old. I don't think it should be about going out there and trying to get as many wins as you can, going out there and trying to to compete and try to compete for a scholarship and all this pressure. And I'm just seeing that there's some negative impacts as a result of that. So I'm trying to raise awareness, use whatever I can to... uh, whatever tools I have at my disposal. And uh, so far, the reception's been great. The site's only been up for three weeks. And so far, it's been outstanding. Really excited. That's good. There's a lot of things there that you just said that I obviously agree with. And that's kind of why I reached out. So my first interaction with you, I somebody sent me a link and said, hey, you got to see what this guy's talking about. And you were kind of just going through your down the road there in your car, just talking a little bit and went on a rant there, just kind of about some of the things you just said. And I just reached out and said, hey, 
make sure you look up John O'Sullivan, who's a guy that I've listened to a little bit in the past, had him on the podcast. And I said, and if I get a chance to be in the same state as you are, I'll get you on my podcast too. So here we are. So a lot of the things that you're talking about, your opinion on some of the youth sports and some of the, the idea of pushing for wins when they're younger versus pushing for fundamentals or just kind of helping kids have fun and, and that type of thing. What is your background that gives you the right to speak on some of those things? I think I set that question up because we, you and I just kind of discussed that. I mean, I feel like you of all people have a background that has the right to speak about some of those things. And I feel like a lot of people talking about things maybe don't as much. So it's refreshing to meet somebody like you that does. Well, I appreciate you saying that. So a little bit about me. I was born and raised in the Northeast in Waterbury, Connecticut. Sports was a big part of my life growing up. I have two older brothers. One's eight years older than me. One's six years older than me, Ted and PJ. And uh, they both played collegiate sports. And from the time we were little kids, sports was a it was a monstrosity part of my life. So I was fortunate enough to, uh, I played multiple sports my whole life. When I got to high school, I dialed it in and played football and baseball with my real passion being baseball. And I always wanted to go on and play collegiately. I was fortunate enough to uh, go play collegiately, was recruited to play for, at the time, was uh, the best Division three baseball program in the country, North Carolina Wesleyan College. Was able to go there and uh, be a part of a national championship team. We won the national championship in 1999 in my freshman year, and that was under former head coach Charlie Long. Great guy, great coach. But my freshman year, my head coach was Mike Fox. And Coach Mike Fox is now the current, and it has been for the last 20 years, the head coach at the University of North Carolina, the Tar Heels. So he has been, um, you know, one of the winningest coaches in, in college baseball history. And you can look up his, you know, I don't need to sit here and give his resume. Playing four years of college, I got to play in two summer collegiate baseball leagues. And this is kind of where this ties in is the summer baseball leagues. Uh, one of them was called the Coastal Plain League. It's a league. It's probably top five of the best college summer leagues in the country. And why it's important in my story is I'm a division three baseball player. And there's times, especially nowadays, and I think it's because the more athletes I talk to on the topic. It's sometimes you hear division one, division two, division three, you hear division two and three people kind of shun it like a big deal, right? Well, go talk to any division one athlete, go talk to any division one coach. And they all say, people who say that are just misinformed. And the problem is media. You don't see division two, division three athletics on TV. Why that's important in my story is because while I got to play in those summer college leagues, I was playing against guys from the ACC, from the SEC, guys from Clemson, guys from the University of South Carolina, North Carolina, and I was competing, starting, and playing right alongside these guys. And why that's an intricate part of the story is because over the last few years, I've really been um, trying to figure out why there's such an emphasis nowadays on youth sports. Why are kids 9, 10 years old and parents really pursuing it as if I got to get a scholarship, scholarship, scholarship. And I'm thinking, what, what the heck's wrong? John has done the science, John O'Sullivan from Changing the Game Project. The more I've seen about him, it's fascinating. All you got to do is go to the NCAA website. And it specifically breaks down per sport, how many kids from high school are participating that go on to play NCAA athletics. In baseball, less than 8% of kids playing high school baseball go on to play NCAA baseball, whether it's Division One, Division Two, or Division Three. So my point is, I think, and forget about, the idea of a scholarship. One of my good buddies who I interviewed, he was an All-American at Clemson, played in Omaha twice. His name is Michael Johnson, great friend. He was a teammate of mine. I talked to Michael, not even a month ago, a couple weeks ago. And I said, Mike, you were an All-American, Division One, Clemson, all this. So you got a full ride, right? He laughed at me. He goes, Nick, what do you, Nick, yeah, I got a scholarship. My scholarship was my books. And the reason why that's important is there's no money in baseball. Teams carry 35, 40 guys. They're allowed to give, and this is across the board, Division One, 11.7 scholarships Per, that's a fully funded program, 11.7 scholarships to give out to 35 kids. They'll break down the math. 
if you only have roughly 7% of high school participating baseball players moving on to NCAA, less than 1% of 1% is getting a scholarship. Why is the emphasis on that? Because we're setting our kids up for disappointment, failure, and John covers it beautifully when he says, kids are burnout. The drop-off rate in youth sports is off the charts, and it's increasing year over year, and it's a direct result of this specialization, and it's turning into an epidemic. That's where kind of my passion, my background as far as being an athlete and then a parent coaching my kids in this environment I was a part of that environment for a little while. I would get excited and all of a sudden I'm running practices as if I'm still in college. I was running 10-year-old baseball practices like I was on a college baseball field. And I'm thinking, what the heck am I doing here? So Yeah, well, that takes a little bit of critical thinking and some being objective to be able to look at yourself and look at what you're actually doing and say, what's going on here? Like, is this really something I want to do? And a lot of people can't step outside what they're doing long enough to really do that. So it seems to be a pattern with a lot of the things that I talk about. Of course, for a minute, I'll kind of digress and, and talk about the horse part of it. And that's a lot of what I'm trying to teach people about how to do things, especially people who are horse trainers, people who have a group of horses that they're working with all the time. And of course, that's no different than a coach. And of course, I coached high school a little bit. I didn't do athletics like you did after that. But doing some of those things, you kind of have to be able to look and say, is what I'm doing really working? Or am I just kind of tricking myself into thinking that it's working. So anyway, it's sure nice to hear somebody that's been through some of those things because it's really easy for people who haven't lived in that environment or haven't really been a part of that to stay over here and kind of say, well, that didn't look like the right thing to do. It's like, well, do you have any experience doing that? No, I don't. Well, then do you have any solutions there? Well, no, I don't. Okay, well, then what are you talking about it for? Now, somebody who's been through some of that and kind of say, look, I've done this. And then it's like, now here we are sitting here talking about it and figuring out, well, what do we do now? And you bring up a couple points right there that I want to touch on. So you bring up the point of having this, I guess if I can paraphrase it, the self-awareness, right? The ability. Well, this didn't just happen because I woke up one day and said, wow, Nick, you're you're really being a crazy sports parent. No, what I did was I had some very humbling personal experiences that took place. Went through a divorce. I spent a lot of, and this is a little off the topic, but it's a little bit about my story is for a long time, I spent a lot of time very consumed with what people thought about me. I was very concerned about keeping up with the Joneses, about my home life could be a wreck, but if you thought it was good, then I was good. I was good with that. And once your entire hand is on the table and it's displayed and you get humbled, I had no choice. I guess I did have a choice. You do have a choice to not change. People will, in addiction will say you hit a bottom. Well, I hit an emotional bottom in my life and a spiritual bottom, and I'm not going to go off on a tangent in that regard, but it was eye-opening. I had to do a lot of soul searching, and I noticed that the problem was me, and I started looking at it. I love my kids. I care about them. I want the best for them, but I think, for me at least, that was a blurred line as to being able to be a good motivator and being a good influencer in my kids' lives versus trying to live vicariously through them, and I crossed that line. Here I am coaching, saying one thing to the kids, acting really kind and considerate to other kids. But when I get my own kid in the car, what are you looking at this pitch for? And I always feel bad about that. Go, what am I doing? And it was because I think it's natural for us parents to, our kids are a reflection of us, right? We always correct them. Make sure you say thank you to an adult. Yes, sir. No, sir. So what's the difference between, hey, make sure you run hard. It's easy to take that same mentality, but it's not the way it should be. Sports, I guess what it made me realize through getting through that humbling life experience was there are things I use currently. I used four years ago going through my divorce that I learned as a youth athlete to help me work through those challenging times. There are life lessons that I learned had I not been playing in, forget about college, 
Had I not played youth sports, I would not have been able to be able to look back and say, oh, wow, I went through an emotionally challenging time when I was 14 doing this. All right, this is an unfamiliar territory to a certain degree. So it kind of made me realize we talk about, and I hear parents all the time, oh, it's $1,200 for the next three months for my kid to play travel baseball. And I'm thinking, what in the hell is going on? Because when I played, it was $60, sign up, you play 20 games, you have fun. I don't think people realize, and this is really important, I don't hear it much, but I'm not going to take credit for whatever. The value proposition with playing youth sports is so astronomical. And I'm not talking specialized in an AAU, no, I'm talking about just regular old-fashioned for $60, whatever the sign-up fee is, your kids would be out and about developing relationships, being in uncomfortable situations learning how to overcome adversity and developing relationships, life lessons that you cannot put a price tag on. So I look at it and say, why the stats are out there. Kids are falling off. We're spending more money. We're driving ourselves nuts in the process. And I think we're losing sight of what's the most important thing. It's getting our kids the opportunity to develop, to develop in many different regards. Yeah. Some of the things you're talking about there are coping skills of how to deal with tough situations that happen in life. And I've always said this and I've always, uh, just like you just said it, there's a lot of good that can come from sports. And I grew up playing a lot of sports and there are people that grow up doing horse activities or people that grow up doing 4-H stuff and showing cattle and, and whatever kind of activities that kids get involved with, especially if it involves some physical work, obviously there's a lot of benefit that can be gained there. But I think, just like you said, it's becoming a little bit of an epidemic. And I'm, a, I guess you could say, on the outside of it. I'm an uncle and uh, I'm a friend, and I have a lot of kids that I know all across the country and in the world, really, that I get to kind of catch up with and see what they're doing in their life. I don't have any of my own, but it's really easy for me to look at what's happening and, of course, compare it and remember the things that happened when I was young. And just like you said, you know, there are things that happened when we were young with sports that were really good. And then there are things that we look back and we probably think, you know, I wonder if this is really something that, was that necessary? Was that day when the coach made us run this and did that and two of the kids passed out and one kid hurt his, was that necessary? And then there are other times when you look back and you're like, man, I'm so glad that that coach pushed me through and helped me and didn't let me quit and wanted me to push on through. And then whether you won or lost necessarily, Sometimes the idea that you didn't give up and you went ahead and do it, I know that helps people. I know there's been times that's, that's helped me. But I think some of the life lessons, the coping skills, the things that we can learn from it, they have to still stay bigger than the negative parts we can get from it. So I think right now it seems like a lot of places I look at, and of course that's what you're talking about, the negative aspect seems to be outweighing the positive aspect. And it's just simple statistics. John covers it. John O'Sullivan changing the game. I mean, the kids are falling, you know, not participating as long. And there's really that sweet spot between, I think it's six to 12 years old. It's called early sports specialization. And it's defined as a clinical definition for playing one sport or more for eight months or more out of the year under the age of 13. Now, there's a couple of sports in there that are exceptions like figure skating and gymnastic, which your shelf life to compete at a high level is shorter. That's the rate you're at. I have this feeling. I'm developing these. And I think to myself, I think I can speak on this. Like I think I have the experience to do it. But at the same time, I wanted to reach out. So I started calling and speaking to my former teammates, my former teammates that are now Division 1A collegiate athletes. 
one of my best friends is a former Boston Red Sox starting outfielder who was on the 2004 World Series championship team is Trot Nixon. I speak to Trot. There's definitely an issue. Trot was a multi-sport athlete. All these coaches, and they all say this, Coach Fox said to me specifically, and I sent a post out with it, He and I have a quote from him. He said, Nick, when I look for in a baseball player's development, now this is Mike Fox, the head coach of the University of North Carolina. It does not get any more intimate as far as being in the recruiting process. That's what he does for a living. He goes, Nick, what I look for in a baseball player's development is less baseball, 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 and more of other sports. Because by the time they get to me, they're either hurt, ready to get hurt, or they're burnt out. And the truth is, I asked Nolan Ryan, Nolan Ryan's Hall of Fame pitcher, arguably the greatest pitcher of all time. I'm fortunate to have a relationship with him. And Nolan said the same thing. There's going to come a time, potentially, if you're lucky, if you're one of the one, one of 1%, where baseball or sport can become like a job. It should not be when you're 10, 11, 12, 13 years old. That's the environment that's prevalent right now. And I don't think it's parent. This is the problem. Parents, I would say majority of parents are genuinely trying to do the right thing for their kids. So you're saying you're an uncle and friend and all these things you have. If your kid loves baseball, he's 11 years old. I'm using baseball as a, let's say your kid loves basketball. Winter season's over, but they're going to do a, a season in the spring. And your kid, I love basketball. I love it. Oh, and you talk to the coach. The coach says to you, we'd love to have him for our spring team. You ask yourself, oh yeah, I want to do it, but I also want to play baseball. Well, we can't do both, right? We can't either afford it or just not enough time. You tell the coach, coach, I'm sorry, he wants to play baseball. And this is what's happening a lot. Not all, not everywhere, but a lot. I hear it all the time. Well, I'm sorry. You know, unfortunately, he may lose his spot on the team. So it doesn't sound, now Trot said it the other day and when we, I posted something on Facebook. It's not a real threat. But inadvertently, if I'm a parent, I want to do the right thing. I got my kid saying he wants to do it. Now I feel like, am I not doing the right thing? I almost feel like to a certain degree, it's, I hate to use the word predatory, but I almost feel like parents at times, their emotions are being, it's a fine line between, uh, I just don't think the information's out there. I don't want to use the word predatory because there's a market, they have a product. I think that's the problem. I don't think people realize that pay for play, they have to stay in business. They're providing a service and it's a pay for service. So just like any restaurant, if they don't have clients and customers coming in, they're going to go out of business. At the same time, we don't know. John's doing a great job. And there's many clinic doctors out there that are showing the same repetitive movements in young children is causing risk and increasing risk of injury. It's causing kids to burn out. It's causing kids to not want to play sports. So at the same time, we're sitting here going, hey, you know, Johnny, get off the couch. You know, stop playing video games. Go play Fortnite. You know, stop doing this stuff. Then we're getting them on the field. And we're putting all this pressure on them and living vicariously through them and yell it at them like I used to do through the fence saying, let's go, let's go, let's go. How's a kid supposed to flourish in that environment with all this pressure? Meanwhile, they got to worry about a kid taking a picture on Instagram and posting it while his dad's screaming at him. Those are pressures that I wouldn't been able to, I don't know if I would have been able to done a very good job of dealing with that. I don't know about you, but when I was 13 years old, that was, those were tough years for me. Yeah, I look back and let's be honest, it wasn't yesterday, but it wasn't that long ago when you and I were 13, 14. And there's, of course, you know, there's people like you know, the generation ahead of us that things have changed drastically since before that. But even when, when I was a kid, sure, we played sports and we did all those things, but there was some pressure at times. But there's so many more opportunities today for kids to be kind of going down those paths that aren't, aren't really going to be healthy for them. 
there was always things they could have done when I was young too. And of course there was kids specializing in sports. And I grew up in a small enough town where, where some people did, but not a lot. Somebody you, you and I haven't even talked about yet, but it's from our hometown. And he's now one of the assistant general managers for the Texas Rangers. His name's Jace Tingler. And he grew up in Smithville. And Your dad mentioned him when I talked to yeah, him. Yeah, okay. I just interviewed him on the podcast the other day and I hadn't gone out there yet, but maybe by the time this one goes out, it would have already been published. But it seems like this is kind of a baseball month. Some of my uh, folks are probably didn't know we had a lot of baseball to talk about. But there's a lot of things that just kind of relate to just keeping things open in general rather than just specializing in that one little thing. There's some great stats out there about as an adult, focusing on one thing long enough, you have to dedicate a portion of your life to something to be great at that thing. And so we all know there's some truth to that. Malcolm Gladwell has a great book about it. And I love listening to his podcast. And here's some things about that. How many hours you have to put in. 10,000 hours. Right? 10, there's some hours. great things there. But also we're talking about adults and we're talking about learning trades and we're talking about different things rather than just putting kids through the amount of hours and all of a sudden you think you're just going to check them off in the calendar and then bam, they're going to be great at something. It doesn't really work that way. What you just said was spot on and I'm so glad you brought it up. It's because you hear it all the time and the 10,000 hour rule. So theoretically, if my kid or an athlete is going to focus from the time they're 13, 18, it's going to take X amount of time to get done. Well, why don't we start them at seven? All right. Well, what about when you talk to, I talked to a gentleman one of the best athletes to come out of the state of Connecticut from my hometown. His name is Chris Ortiz. Played for the Patriots, played for uh, the Kansas City Chiefs and the XFL. One of the greatest wide receivers to ever go out of Southern Connecticut State University, a small mid-major Division I school. Chris didn't play organized sports until he was 14 years old. Did not play football until he got to high school. Every athlete I've spoken to, and I have 18 of them, I think maybe a little bit more, on record, all played multiple sports. And they all said... They didn't even know, with the exception, Ben Askren was a little bit different. He knew he wanted to be a wrestler. That's a little bit of a different animal, wrestling is concerned. But he also points out that 10, 11, 12-year-old kids, give you an idea, my kids would eat cereal for the most part, three meals a day. I didn't. You know, I wanted to do that all day when I was 10, 11, 12 years old. Well, as I get older, my taste buds changed. I liked the steak. I liked certain things. I liked vegetables. Just because my kid wants to eat cereal three times a day and run across the street without looking both ways, does that mean I should let him do it? Isn't my job to gather information because this is not in your best interest long term? And I think you can pull up the article, Nomar Garcia Parra, who's a starting shortstop all-star. He's one of Trot's buddies for the Boston Red Sox. Went out and he's married to Mia Hamm. They're raising, I mean, God only knows what their kids are going to be like athletically. But he said, my kids want to eat ice cream all day long. Does that mean I let them do it? No, there has to be some sort of instruction from the parent. And I think that's the problem. Parents, I don't think they're intentionally trying to hurt their kids in most regard. They think they're putting them in the right position. There's not enough information out there that is raising awareness to the fact that we're actually doing our kids a disservice, not just athletically, but emotionally. Think about the amount of relationships that you got from when your wrestling days, your brothers in football days that you still have to this day. Now you're equestrian expert. Well, Think about the relationships you got from that. What if you just stayed in one lane your whole life? There's an influence and it helps us overall. And not to say there's anything wrong with specializing once you get to a certain point, because I get if that's what you want to do, that's what you want to do. But we, I know for me as a parent, this whole has changed the way I'm raising my kids. It has changed them. And now, give you a brief little story. Yesterday, my two boys were at a wrestling tournament. It kind of blew me away, but I get it. And we get a call. I'm not there because we're home with our smaller three kids. We have a five-year-old. We have six kids, right? 14, 13, 12, five, two and a half, nine months. So my wife and I were home. Two older ones were at the wrestling tournament. I get a missed call from the coach. I'm like, oh God, broken arm. What's going on? Call back. 
took a face plant, big knot in his head, getting checked for a concussion. Talked to the trainer. Yeah, it looks like he has a concussion. Very, very mild. We're monitoring. He's fine. He's cognizant, all this stuff. But we're going to hold him out. Is that okay? And I go, what do you mean is that okay? Yes, of course it's okay. What? The trainers go, okay, good. I just want to make sure. And I'm thinking to myself, hold on. People would actually say, yeah, get him out there. You know what? There might have been a time I would have been one of those guys. My first instinct might have been, well, how bad is the concussion? Because, I mean, he's 14. I spent $120 for him to go there. Like, we got to get our money's worth. And that's a big part of it. Money corrupts. That's one problem. Whenever people start putting money into stuff, they feel like they want to have. Let's say we ordered some food right now at this little coffee shop that we're at. What's it called? Mugs? Mug shop. Yeah. Mug shop coffee in uh, Charlotte, North Carolina is where we're sitting at. But I'll make sure the tea's good before I give them a shout out. But it's pretty good. All right. Let's say we ordered some food, which they don't have any. I already checked. And it comes here. And it's not very good. I know I'm going to pay for it. So I'm going to eat a little bit of it anyway. Of course. Because you feel like you want to get your money's worth. That's not healthy. That's not good. Mentally, that's not good physically. You don't like the food. And most likely, me, I wouldn't order healthy food anyway. Sure. So You and me both. So here I have this food that the only reason I'm even really eating it is because I think there's monetary value that I'm losing if I don't eat it. So I feel like that goes with so many aspects of life. And that's a big part in the, in the sports. You feel like you're paying for something, you got to get it. But back to what you said there, yes. And I can remember as a coach, looking back, not being proud of some moments that I had when some kid was hurt. And I'm going, are you serious? Come on, we got to win tonight. You're fine. Oh yeah. Now, of course, once again, there's both sides to that. We all know, I mean, way back to the days of watching the program, you know, there's a difference in being hurt and being injured, right? So, you know, <laughs> what if, a if, classic movie. Classic. So, you know, if you're injured, you can't play anymore or you can't wrestle tonight. If you're hurt, well, you're fine. Get up. So yeah. what's the, you know, so there's the thing there. And so sometimes you got to be able to push kids past being hurt because we do that in life. You know, you're sick today. Well, you got to work anyway because you're going to be sick either way. And one, you can get some work done. One, you can just stay home sick. You don't want to infect the office if you work in an office. But I mean, sometimes you just got to go work no matter what's going on in your day, your back hurts or whatever it is. But we have to help kids toughen up in a way. But we also can't, like you just said, I mean, it's amazing that the coaches and how old was this kid that hurt his head? He'll be 14. He's 14. And they're wanting to know if it's okay. We think he has a concussion. Is it okay if we sit him out? Of course, that should, that shouldn't even be a question, right? And I'll have to admit, I remember coaching when the new concussion rules came out in high school wrestling, where the trainer had the right to say he can't go back, even if the kid says I'm good to go and the coach says he's good to go. And even if the parents say he's good to go, the trainer has the right or the doctor on the premises has the right to say, no, he cannot wrestle anymore today. I remember when that came out and as coaches, we were like, wait a minute, that doesn't sound right. There's a balance to find there between letting kids learn to be a little tougher because most kids seem to not be getting tougher today and kids are getting kind of weaker at things. But there's a difference in that versus trying to put of an amount of importance on something that is not important. I get passionate about this because I've been on both sides of it. And I say to myself, so my, my answer to that question would be, well, I totally agree with you, number one. But there have been situations with my kids in general that where I can tell where they might be. So a lot of it is, why don't we ask the question? How are you really feeling? Are you doing this because you don't want to participate anymore? And then I look back and say, all right, I feel like it's a perfect opportunity for me as a parent to teach. And, and I learned this. Coach Mike Fox, he was talking about learning life lessons. I played for him for one season and I learned so many things from him. I was very emotionally weak my freshman year. I mean, I, was, I wasn't confident. I was just, I felt like I was the young. I didn't go in there as a freshman and feel old. I didn't feel, I felt like a little guy. And a lot of that had to do with my physical development. I hadn't quite gotten there yet. And I, I was smaller and younger in a lot of regards. But Coach Fox, 
so there was other guys that were freshmen, good friends of mine who were getting after it, who were confident. I'd go, God almighty. He would handle me differently than he would those guys. He may tell them, shut up, not literally, but hurry up. But he would say, Nick, hey, do you know how good you are? Listen, stop beating yourself up. And I didn't milk it. It helped me. It helped me realize like he's really, years later, I realized, God, that was great coaches and great leaders will hear this and go, that's common sense. Well, it's not common sense. Handling each person individually. And I think that is how, at least for me, when I'm trying to live vicariously through my kid, I'm not worried about how he feels, how she feels, what they think. I'm just trying to push them to make sure that they accomplish something for my benefit. And what I'll say is, break down the odds. So if I look at it, use yesterday as an example of my son in his wrestling match. So what's the doubt? Let's say he was milking it. Let's say it was fake. He was not really injured. He just didn't want to wrestle anymore. All right, well, what's going to really be beneficial if I hammer home that he's got to participate? Eventually, if that's his attitude, it's going to come out eventually. He might not just be in his lane yet. Maybe he likes wrestling, is not sure yet. He might not be wrestling in a year from now. Maybe he decides he wants to focus on track and field. Maybe he wants to get in the and dance. I have no idea. But my point is, as a parent, I have to do the best I can to try to disseminate and try to open every door possible and try to foster what is their passion. And I truly believe if a kid is faking an injury, I think that's a sign that they're probably not in their lane and it's a bigger problem. Probably. I don't think I'm going to surprise my middle school coaches right now by saying this in case any of them are listening, that I wasn't really hurt a couple of those times. <laughs> You're kidding me? Right? And and I think later I became a pretty successful athlete. I was a successful ass a few times as sure. well, but I was a successful yeah, athlete is what I was trying to say. But on the way to that, there was times and days when kind of like you said, I wasn't ready to compete yet in high school and when I first started at freshman year. But the point is, if a kid is not wanting to play and they feel like they don't want to admit that, so they're going to fake an injury or at least kind of maybe play up a little more than it really is, then that probably means they shouldn't be playing anyway, at least until they decide to be ready. Now, I'm going to take a quick digression for the people that are out there that are more interested in horses than baseball, because I know I have some people that are there. This is the same problem that I talk about every horse clinic I do, every, especially the young trainers that I get to work with. They go at it with the same mentality that they're going to use their program and every horse needs to learn to conform to their program. And they do the same thing each time, expecting each horse to conform to that rather than looking at each horse as an individual and realizing that to get both of these horses to do the same thing, you have to get horse A this way and horse B that way to get the same thing done. Some horses need a little more, some need a little less. Now, we're talking about horses that don't even have the parts of their brain that are able to analyze information like you and I have in these young kids. So now you add that in there and the children that we seem to work with seems to be having even a bigger impact on the fact that they have to be able to do it on their own accord. And it's the same with an animal, but if you try to make it happen, then they may do it, but they may do it for the wrong reasons. So then that's not going to last mentally. Why are we worried about, I mean, what good is it that a kid does something only because someone else wants him to do it? That's no good. There's no initiative there. And there's nothing there that's going to benefit his life later. And there's no lessons, no coping skills he's going to learn there, none of those things. So the way I look at it is just like what you said a minute ago is getting it to be their idea. That kind of seems to be an important part of it. And it's funny. There's two things I want to touch on that you just made great points on. One, and I want to try to remember my first point. I have short term. I get all over the place. They're sporadic. So I'll stick with the one that's on my mind now. Ben Askren actually did, you know, Ben Askren, as you know, 
four-time NCAA Division I All-American, two-time national champ, now current MMA star, was able to get his time for 20 minutes a couple weeks back. For Missouri University, from by Mizzou. the way. From Mizzou, uh, man. I used to watch him wrestle in college, and of course now I try to catch him whenever I can on the UFC and doing stuff. Oh, he's a beast. Awesome guy, too. I mean, talk about humble and down-to-earth and salt of the earth. But he put a post out on his Facebook page and social media talking about wrestling burnout, specifically wrestling burnout and his club. And he talks about retention in wrestling. You lose 40% of the kids year over year. Every year, it's been like that, I guess. And this is according to Ben for, I don't know how long, maybe 10, 15, 20, 40% you're losing every year. He points out how at his club, when they go to dual tournaments on the national scene, they're kind of losing handsomely in the lower weights, 60, 70, 80, 90, well, 50, 60, 70, 80. Theoretically, that's because those are the younger kids. Like they're getting mopped up, he said, but they're cleaning up the bigger divisions. And he goes, I directly correlate that to the intensity and pressure of kids to have to compete at seven, eight, six, seven, eight, nine years old, and we're losing them. So it goes back to what you're saying. It would be easy for me to influence my seven, eight-year-old kid to be a lunatic on the wrestling mat because he just wants to please me. If he's a halfway decent athlete and I want to crack a whip behind him theoretically and just force them to be this animal, and what he's basically pointing out is I think, why are those kids leaving the sport so early? If you're a stud at eight, nine years old, why are you not continuing on? Well, because you don't want to do it anymore. That was Ben who said that, and I didn't quote it exactly yet, but I think it goes back to what we were talking about is, is knowing you brought up the horse thing. And I think it's, I don't think we're, I know for me, and this may sound really silly because maybe some parents out there do this. To me, it didn't come naturally. Ask my kids what they want to do. Ask them, do you want to do this? Do you want to do this? Do you want to pursue this? Is this something you're interested in? And more importantly, let's face it, if my, and go back to the injury aspect of it. First of all, you saw the movie Bull Durham, I'm sure. Great scene. Great scene in there where they're- uh, With a rain delay. Rain delay. Well, I, 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 spe- that's where you were going. I specifically, now here I am. I want to be a major league baseball player when I'm 19, 20 years old. When I was playing for the Coastal, in the, for the Wilmington Sharks in the Coastal Playing League, you know, we played 50 games a summer. I mean, that's which is, is awesome experience, right? It's how I got better. And it's 100 degrees. You're playing doubleheaders. You're praying for rain eventually. I mean, you can't wait for it. You're, we used to say the best part about baseball in the summer is when we get rained out because we would just be like, God, this is so tiring. Got a day off. Oh my God. But my point is, is at that time, you're trying to, a lot of those guys went on to play professionally. Here we are expecting kids who are six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11 years old to not want rain delays when you have professionals praying for rain delays at times. And I was one of them. So at least for me, there's something off there. If a pro wants to get a day off once in a while, then what the heck's wrong with an eight-year-old kid wanting a day off? Or you know what I'm going oh, with that? Yeah, 100%. So you played a little bit overseas. Tell us a little bit about that. Basically, my junior year of college, I uh, told by my coach going into the summer, he's like, listen, there's been some scouts that have been, we were four, I think we had two or three guys, pitchers that got drafted. And I thought there was an outside shot. I might get drafted my junior year. Probably not. But I thought for sure my senior year I would. But I ended up not. And I was very, very, very disappointed. I put a lot of pressure on myself my senior year. And I just I had an okay year. But I didn't do enough to get drafted. And that was a huge letdown for me. But I got the opportunity to go play in Italy. And it's funny because... Uh, I was playing, I got to play in the city of Parma. It's a little bit different over in Italy. Uh, you play Fridays, Saturdays, Sundays, but you get paid. I mean, I got paid like minor league salaries, which is nothing, next to nothing. You get room for free and all that stuff, but I'm living in Italy. My job is to play baseball. At that time, I actually had my best year I could possibly have had. I was invited to go on the Italian national team and had I come back the year after, I was told I would have been able to potentially play in the Olympics in Greece with Team Italia. And the reason why, I, because I was able to get 
dual citizenship. My father was 100% Italian, so you have to kind of trace back your, and I was able to get dual citizenship. Uh, so I would have been able to. Anyway, it's funny because I ended up hitting 350. I hit more home runs than I ever hit in my life. I was playing really well. But about halfway through the year, man, I got burned out. I mean, I got burnt like you would not believe. I could not wait to go home and start a job. I just wanted to start working. And I think it's because, so one of my good friends who ended up making it to AAA, his name is Buddy Hernandez. He's now a uh, high-level scout in the Philadelphia Phillies organization. And he was traveling, doing single-A ball and taking 20-hour bus rides. And I'd be talking to him. And he's like, man, it's a grind. But he loved it. And I'm like, how much are you getting paid? And those guys don't make money. Peanuts. And I'm like, I don't know if this is worth it. I was playing with guys that had been to AA, AAA, single-A, and now they were barnstorming. They were bouncing around from country to country, playing baseball for a living. And that didn't excite me. It just didn't excite me. At the end of the year, I was actually invited to go to Vero Beach, Florida to go um, try out with the Dodgers to do a rookie camp to see if I had opportunity to get invited on. I didn't want to. I was done. And it's funny. Sometimes I think about it. And my father at the time was like, what is wrong with you? Why are you, why are you not doing this? I'm like that. I'm, I don't want to. Truthfully, I was not willing to do the things that I needed to do to get to that level, which was lift weights hard. I didn't want to lift weight. I didn't like, I don't like lifting. Clearly you can see I'm wearing baggy clothes because I don't want to lift weights. That didn't excite me. I love playing the game. Those are the things that you have to do if you want to get to the next level. And I wasn't willing to do it. And at the end of the day, the experience though of going over there, living abroad, proving to myself that I can play at that level was almost a satisfaction enough. It was good baseball. But uh, if I really go back and look at it from the time I was a freshman in college, Till Italy, so basically five years, I never stopped playing baseball. Never stopped. High school, I played football, play rec basketball, and then I played baseball. And I lived in the Northeast. You couldn't play baseball year round, snow on the ground in March. So for the first time in my life, I specialized in a sport and I got burnt out. I can't imagine being 10 and doing that for five years. You couldn't pay me to pick up a bat after I got done playing. I couldn't imagine doing that as a kid. So speaking of 10 year olds, you were talking about earlier, you have six kids at home. Six children. And just talk to us a little bit about just the different activities, even if there's only a few, but especially with that many, it seems to me like a lot of kids are just never home anymore. And whether that's because of specific sports or whether that's just because of other activities. And of course, I think activities are can be great in general. But from your standpoint as a father, tell me a little bit about how that family dynamic works and how you keep that balance between letting them have that home life and that family and that good stuff going on there and relaxing versus keeping up with everything that's happening with them. So that's a great point. And it's almost like I was beaten into submission to feel this way. And the reason why is my son was doing at one point, and then of course I got divorced. And like I said, we six children combined were a hers, mine and ours deal, but we have the kids full time. But with that many kids, you can't do everything. So we were actually finally legitimately put in a position where we had to say no. And it's been the greatest blessing. I'm such an impulsive dad and I get excited and I want to, oh yeah, yeah. It's hard for me to say no. So the dynamic is like right now, my two oldest boys are really dialed into wrestling and lacrosse. They don't even play baseball anymore. It's funny. And my daughter, she's 14, 13, 12. My two boys are 14 and 13, my two boys. And my 12 year old is my daughter. Sports isn't really a big deal to her. She likes doing some things, but she loves the arts. She loves singing. She loves, I don't know anything about it. And my youngest ones, of course, aren't quite there yet. My five-year-old just started playing soccer. So we're limited. We have to really juggle which activities we can go to. We have to tell them no. We had to tell them no to playing. They wanted to try out for travel across this year. And we were like, guys, sorry, we can't do it. You're playing for your school. You play rec on Sundays sometimes. So that's it. Sorry. 
which is fine. It's gotten us conditioned to be able to, it's, no is okay. You don't get everything you want. It is what it is. Kids need to hear no. 100%. I mean, you just cannot stress enough that young adults need to have been told, no, you don't get to do that. And the other thing they need to have been told is, yeah, other people are doing that and having fun right now, but we're not doing that because we're doing something else. And it doesn't really matter why. Right. And of course, I remember as a kid saying, why not? Why not? Because I said, well, that's not good enough. Well, there needs to be sometimes, I think, some of that where it's just like, yeah, you're not necessarily missing out just because you're choosing not to do something because there's always more things to do. I'm missing out on talking to somebody else right now, talking to you. But my focus is talking to you because that's what I'm doing. And that doesn't mean that all I have to do is think about whatever's happening down the road. You have to be able to just say, well, that didn't work out because I decided to do this. And I think we miss a lot of those opportunities with young adults. So that's a great point. And one of the biggest benefits that my parents gave me, because we didn't come from a family of means by any stretch of the imagination, they allowed me and my brothers to make decisions. And if we made it, we stuck with it. That's it. I don't care if you don't like it. You're finishing it. You're not quitting all this stuff. And for our life, it was all about sports, right? So all the life lessons I learned and the ability to make decisions, how they influence me now. I'm living in Wilmington, North Carolina now as a direct result of having gone to school in North Carolina because I played baseball. Not because I played Division One and got a scholarship. No, because I love to play it. I played and I, I'm there. It's influenced my life. I went to school 10 hours away from my house. My parents said, if that's what you want to do, do it. And now I'm not afraid to try new things. I'm not afraid to get rejected. If it doesn't work out, those are all things I learned on the baseball field and through playing sports. And my kids, I'm going to just touch on really quick the sport of wrestling and lacrosse a little bit, but I didn't know anything about those sports at all. And I did a post a few days ago or a week or so ago about how I learned how to smell the roses with my kids' sports. I had a, I think as a former athlete and I gravitated towards the sports I played. I kind of pushed my kids towards the ones that I played because I was comfortable doing that, instructing them or pushing them in those directions. Well, when they started doing wrestling, I had no idea what I was talking. I couldn't teach wrestling. Now I know what a double leg is and I know how to, a little bit, but I had no idea what that meant. And it was the most wonderful feeling. I can actually sit there and watch my kids play a sport, watch them, like my daughter singing and playing. I have no idea what she's doing. I love it because I could just be a fan. And when they were playing baseball, when they were playing football, I'd like to think I have an idea of what I'm talking about in those things. And even if I don't, I would certainly talk to my kid like I do because I was a lunatic parent at one point. And I wasn't enjoying the short time frame where they're doing something that they're supposed to have fun doing. When they started playing sports that I had no influence on and I couldn't explain, I was able to enjoy it. And it's made our entire experience a lot better. And it's our whole family dynamic is better as a result, to be quite frank. Well, and it's interesting now that some of the sports they're doing are the ones that you were just a fan of rather than the ones that you knew a lot about. Yep. Right? And that's just... Coincidence. Yeah, that's just kind of funny. And of course, there are examples of both out there. There are some that are three or four generations, one sport exactly, and it's this and that. And growing up with me, we came from a wrestling family. My dad wrestled in high school, wrestled in college, and he played football as well and track also in college. But wrestling was something that was kind of big in our family. And a lot of people probably assumed that we were getting pushed quite a bit, but we weren't actually. As far as you have to wrestle, you have to, I mean, those weren't words that we heard, but there's always that undertone that you kind of put on yourself of that pressure. Like everybody else in the family is doing this. So I got to do that. But it is interesting how, how different kids will handle that a little bit differently. Something that you said earlier that I wanted to kind of bring back and you said just about learning the sport and talking about wrestling or some of the other sports where they're just teaching the kids how to learn. I remember middle school football and 
I was not a super competitive young kid. I was just kind of, eh, it's all right. I'd play this, play t-ball and play a little of this and that. And of course, I knew what football was and we'd play around with it and this and that. My brothers, I had two older brothers, so they were playing sports. And I spent a lot of time at like my grandpa's farm growing up and then doing some of that stuff when I was young. I distinctly remember coming back for sixth grade football. It would be the first time I ever played football. And back then, around that part of the state, there really wasn't very many like Little League football stuff. So I wasn't, I never played football before. It was sixth grade football practice. And it was like the week before school or whatever it was, right? We start out. And here we are the first day. And the coaches start telling everybody what to do. And all of a sudden, I kind of looked around thinking, wait a minute, did I? I really had this thought did I miss the first week of practice and everybody else already knows what the coaches are talking about? And did my parents like maybe let me stay at the farm longer and not (laughs) tell me? And then I brought me, I really thought that for a few days because it seemed like they weren't teaching us how to play football. They were just telling us what to do. I remember somebody saying one of the first things the coach ever said to the sixth grade group was, okay, who's going to be receiver? Who's going to be running back? And my thought was, what's the difference? Like, which one's which? Have you not thought about maybe teaching the sport of football to these kids rather than just telling them what they're going to start doing and figuring out who it was? And that just kind of goes deeper and deeper. But that's a big thing, just teaching the kids about the sport. You know how many kids play sports and do not know the rules? Tons. And obviously, there's you don't need to overload a 10-year-old child with a list of rules. But there's also some things where they get in the habit of doing something, then all of a sudden they find out, oh, I can't do that because of this. And it's like, oh, well, you know, they don't even understand really what's happening. They understand the big moments of the game, but maybe not all the details that really help the whole thing. It's very, uh, that's a great, that's a great point. As far as the teaching aspect of it, I, I think that, at least for me, I can only speak for myself when I would coach kids who were never, my biggest thing was to teach the fundamentals of the game and understand, you know, the basics and such. But uh, it's very, uh, in today's environment, in today's culture, there's a lot of emphasis on man winning, man. And I can say to you that there was a time when, I'm just going to tell you, I remember sometimes driving to my kids' games, and I'm going to talk you through my psychotic head. And I remember pulling in there thinking like, dude, I am like Joe Torre in here. Like, I am like Lou Pinella. <laughs> like, I am the best coach. Po- like, I, And I, now I look back and I think about what a, talk about an ego and talk about an idiot. What a, I'm having my kids' 10-year-old games and I'm thinking, man, I'm like bowing up to myself like... Like, how cool am I that, like, my team's 10 and 1? You got the bubble gum chomping, <laughs> yeah. you're looking around. Oh, dude. Got your head on a swivel, oh, chest my, out. Oh, my God. And I'm thinking, and why is that funny is because I made it fun. You know, I think I, we did a great job. But at the same time, you want to win. You want to win. And there's a fine line. I'm not one of these guys that's lets everyone get a trophy and let's all eat snacks. And I, that is not where I am either. Sure, that's the other extreme, right? Correct. I think there's two extremes. And John covers this beautiful because I think he says the same thing. It's, we got to be in the middle and kids know what the darn score is, whether we keep the scoreboards on or not, they're keeping score, but it doesn't mean you can't teach someone how to be competitive. And one of the great things I interviewed, so I interviewed, this is an amazing point. I interviewed, like I said, a bunch of guys and I'll, I'll point out a few of them. So Hall of Fame basketball coach from University of Connecticut, Jim Calhoun. I interviewed him. I interviewed um, an All-American uh, basketball player who I know from my hometown. Uh, it's uh, Southern New Hampshire University. He's now the head basketball coach in England for the Lyceum Riders Club, the winningest club in England. Edmund Saunders was on the 99 UConn National Championship basketball team that beat Duke. And a couple other guys, Tony Ortiz, who was a two-time national champion linebacker for the University of Nebraska. I asked them this question. What did you guys take away from 
your time, and also Matt McKay from the University of North Carolina said the same thing, baseball player. What did you guys, what do you think one of the biggest things that you learned from playing multiple sports as a kid? What is one of the biggest things you took away from it? All of them said, I learned how to compete. I learned how to be competitive. And they said, it's not necessarily being competitive just on the specific. They said, I learned how to compete going in my backyard and playing tackle football. I learned to compete going to the park and playing pickup. Jim Calhoun said, Nick, I remember being pickup basketball games at a park. I start fighting a guy because he says I followed him and I didn't follow him. Being at the park, that's not a catch in a football game. This is Jim Calhoun and we're fighting. He goes, Nick, it's because nowadays kids are playing so many games all the time that they're not excited to compete. It's watered down. They're going out there and it's the end culture. They're playing so much that it's about, I got to go get 10 points, 15 points. I got to, if I'm a baseball player, I got to get two hits. I got to let someone see me do something that stands out so I can potentially get a scholarship instead of just going out there and darn competing. And Jim Calhoun said, Nick, it, talent takes over everything. If you give me someone who's 6'6 six, and a natural, LeBron James, Zion Williamson, those guys, that's the 1% of the 1% of the 1%. But the biggest characteristic he said is, give me someone who wants to compete. That's as high of a uh, personal trait to any successful athlete. And he, they all said it was mainly due to their playing multiple sports as kids and learning to get after it. Yeah. And I think that's one of the big pieces you can get from the sports is just learning to work through things, right? Just learning to, learning to be competitive. And, and there's some good things about being competitive. There are people that have listened to some of my other podcasts where I kind of talk about how I had to get rid of some of the competitiveness for myself in order to excel at some of the things that I do now with the, with the horses and even working with people. And I worked in the education system for a little while, working with children with some behavioral needs and it seems like there's a lot of competition there that teachers are trying to have with kids or that kids are having with other kids and the kids are trying to have with the people that are trying to help them. And there's a, there's a lot of negative consequences that can come from being too competitive, but there's a lot of good that can come from learning, try to persevere, try to get through it. You asked me about my home dynamic. Come to my house. One of the, one of the biggest motivators to get my two, my five-year-old and my two-and-a-half-year-old share a bed, four-and-a-half and two-and-a-half-year-old and two and share a bedroom. The best way to get them to get upstairs is, Who's going to win upstairs? Who's going to win getting upstairs first? Who's going to brush their teeth first? It's naturally ingrained to be competitive. Like we're not supposed to, I don't believe it's, I think it's a natural instinct in all of us. I think to take that out of the equation completely is- Not going to happen. No. And, and to, it's not good. No, it's unnatural. I believe I just look at my kids and to go the other way is no good either. So at the end of the day, the best thing and what I'm trying to accomplish from this whole reform sports parent is to try to be a voice that is someone who's been there, who's been on both sides, who has kids that are now 14 and one who's eight and a half months. And I'm going to do things differently. I'm going to do things differently this time around because I see, and I've been fortunate that I think I caught it early enough and we were able to kind of wrap our arms around it, not be so psychotic for too long. And I've seen it be beneficial. And at the end of the day, man, the best thing that kids need to learn is how to be able to use what they learn as kids to, like you said, and use it in life. Yeah, for sure. So Nick, I kind of hate to ask you this because I know you are just in the beginning stages here of what you're doing and not exactly sure what you want to do, but tell us what you're trying to do with this. I mean, of course, right now people have got to hear your thoughts on a lot of the stuff, your background and, and some of the experiences you've had to, to bring up these thoughts you have, but now now what? What are you working on or what's your thoughts about what you can do to help people out there? Basically, the Reform Sports Parent is, I want to say- Reform Sports Parent is the name of your Facebook page. You have a website yet? Yes. The website is just Reformed Sports Parent and it's set up right now 
reformsportsparent.com as a, a kind of a blog. I haven't posted anything in there yet. I have all, what I'm trying to do is figure out how I'm going to disseminate all this content that I have. I mean, I have probably, I don't even know how many hours worth of content from some very, very, very in the know athletes and coaches that I probably had no business being able to get on the phone, but through sports and through relationships as a result of playing youth sports, I've been able to foster these relationships. And uh, so my goal is to be a voice. And really what happened was I kind of got motivated by the people I started talking to. So I started reaching out to these guys and they go, Nick, you're one of my old coaches, coach Jerry Edwards said, Nick, you, uh, he's now an assistant. Uh, he's a head pitching coach at a D1 school. I think it's UNC Greensboro. And he said, Nick, you're in a unique position because you played high level division three baseball. Go back in time, put today's environment out there. You're probably a D1 guy right out of high school because of all the exposure kids get nowadays. But you have the ability to speak to because what he says is nowadays it's kids are either saying D1 or bust. Almost like if I don't get a scholarship, go play division one, then it's not even worth doing it. It's like, we're missing the point. If you are, if you're able to play college sports at any level, you're in the 90th percentile of people in the country. And if it can help you get an education, great. Are you kidding me? I wouldn't even have a college degree if it wasn't for sports. I'm not sure if I would have finished high school (laughs) if it wasn't for sports. Uh, Really, you're exactly right. I wouldn't want to show up. And there's a lot of people like that. So what I'm trying to do is use whatever types of relationships I have, my passion and try to disseminate the information, try to be a voice. And so far, and it was a lot, the post that you saw, I literally held my phone up and said, I need to just, because I'd been typing. So first of all, I had all these interviews done and I hate typing. I'm like, I don't want to be a typer. Like, this is not fun. I don't like this. It's take me forever. So I just did it, push send, and the feedback was unbelievable. And I realized right now it's fun. I do think, because I have friends of mine that are really, you know, ex-professional athletes that are like really interested in being involved, really interested in hopping on a podcast. I said, Nick, if you do a podcast, I'm in. I want to talk about this. So one gentleman in particular is one of Trot's, uh, my buddy Trot Nixon's old teammate. His name is Kevin Euclid. started following him because I saw some of his Twitter feed and he's talking about youth sports in California. Same thing that John and I are saying, youth sports in California. It's so bad, you know, yada, 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 kids all year long. And so I connected with him and he's like, you guys do a podcast, I'm in. So maybe that's it. I'm not quite sure. All I know is I'm a firm believer in this. If you take care of the top line, the bottom line will follow. And I'm not looking at doing this from any monetary standpoint. I feel like if I'm doing it from the right perspective, then if that's going to happen, then that'll happen and we'll get there. Right now, I just want to try to... I feel exactly the same way. That Of course, that's what I'm doing here with mine, right? I mean, I mean, number one, if I can get a podcast going, you can too. If it's something you're interested in, it's not that difficult. There are some things uh, I have learned that I can share with a few people. I don't know much about doing this, but I'll show you. I'll, I'll try to keep you out of a few of the sand traps I got into. But overall, today, the technology of doing some of these things is just... I can't imagine trying to start some of the things that these people are doing 20 years ago without some of this equipment and these things that you can get into now. But I do think that it's important. And I, and I agree with you exactly what you said about taking care of the top line and seeing what happens. I mean, that's kind of what I've done a lot in my life is like, okay, this is what I want to do. So I'm just going to kind of keep working at that. And then every now and then try to figure out if I can get paid to do that. And then kind of, you know, then there's days and, and weeks where you have to go for a while and just do the things you have to do in order to do what you can do later. And then you end up trying to figure how you can just enjoy those days as well. But overall, I think you're going at it with the right way. So what do you do for a living now? So I've been in finance for the last 17 years. I worked in New York City for 10 years. I'm a broker trader. So a lot of relationships I have from that business. And and that's, as you know, it's a it's competitive as it gets. And But yeah, I've been doing it for a long time. And there's a lot of things I was able to learn 
in that business that had I not played, <laughs> just I can always go back to the, the sports thing and say that, that helped me. I graduated with a degree in history and here I am, I've been in financial services for the last 17 years. So it's amazing what can happen when you put yourself out there and aren't afraid to take a chance and are passionate. Right now, what I'm feeling is a tremendous amount of passion for this subject and I want to convey it. Yeah, that's obvious. And I saw that when I listened to your Facebook post there. And then I, that's why I wanted to reach out because I, I like talking to passionate people if it's something that I also am passionate about as well in, in a different way. So reformsportsparent.com. People can check you out there. Is there anything else you want to leave everybody with? I just want to say thank you very much for having me. And I hope that we can get a lot of converted reformed sports parents out there. And I hope that more people won't be afraid to speak out and just like I have and just say, it's not about me. It's not about me as a parent anymore, man. It's not no longer. I had my time. Yeah. No more. Good. Okay, Nick. Thanks a lot. Thank you so much, Cal. If you're enjoying the Horses in Life podcast, there are many ways you can support it. You can obviously tell people about it. You can tell your friends about it. You can share it through social media or any other means. You can go to patreon.com and support it financially. There's a little more information on my website about the podcast. Also on my website, calmiddleton.com. Please be sure you sign up for my monthly newsletters through my email subscription list. Until next time, enjoy each day. Enjoy each day.